This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Could the secret to saving the Great Barrier Reef be cloud brightening? Like you've heard of teeth whitening, (laughs) but what about the clouds? How is this possible? Why would it help save the reef? What are the risks? We're going to be chatting about this a bit later because there's a guy who's researching it right now in Australia and it's really interesting stuff. Also coming up, get your boots on, get your whips out. We're talking country music. Is there a massive change happening in Australia when it comes to this genre? But what's still stopping young artists in country breaking through here with bigger audiences? First though. Hack. I don't want to hear anything justifying this property. On Triple J. Shit rentals. You would have heard of it? The website shaming dodgy properties. I mean, really bad ones. Mold nightmares, broken floors, collapsed ceilings. It's there in all its horror. Kind of like a Google reviews for rentals. And it also means that we're hearing some of the really awful stories about people getting sick, hurt or injured because of problems with their rental. Problems they've been trying to get fixed for weeks, months, maybe even years. Is that you? Have you been injured because of something you've complained about to an agent or landlord? Call in 1300 555 You can message in to 0439 We're going to get some advice from a lawyer in a bit. But first, Joe Lauder's been meeting the guy giving power back to the people. It's really unfair that people have to rely on some white dude on TikTok to to be their voice. This is Geordie Vanderberg, aka the guy behind Shit Rentals. But you might know him by another name. Um, Purple Pingers. Did you expect it to get so big when you started out with Purple Pingers as your <laughs> username? Absolutely not. It's a, it's a decision I regret uh, <laughs> pretty immensely. Geordie started out making reviews online about how shit the property market is for renters and looking at specific properties. Hello, welcome back to Shit Rentals with your host, Purple Pingers. I'm here at 9 to 15 Palmer Street in East Melbourne. Moving on, it looks like this landlord kind of strapped a disc sander to the bum of a dog with worms and it just scooted around for a couple of years. Today's episode is really just going to be about mould. Immediately as you walk into this property, the smell of mould is overwhelming. My partner and I both suffered um, with like skin conditions, respiratory conditions and like irritated eyes. Essentially, it was just full of mould and damp. This is Hayley. Geordie reviewed her place. The real estate kept saying that they will do something, but nothing ever happened until eventually... The real estate came over and told me that the only way that it would end up getting fixed is if we moved out. Haley said she felt like she needed to let other renters know. So now if you Google that particular address, like the first thing that comes up is like Geordie's Instagram and TikTok, which warns people, this place is full of mould. Geordie ended up getting so overwhelmed with people asking him to review their shit rental that he was like... I should make this more official. Shitrentals.org is kind of, it's a review website. It's really um, Google reviews, but for landlords or properties and agencies rather. And they, it's one where you can't just get it removed because you don't like it. There are now over 2,200 submissions on the site and people review their rentals with the full address so you can find them or their real estates. Stuff like this. Mould down hallway, lounge, and particularly in these two sunrooms. I was there for years, and one day I reported this mould, asking for it to be cleaned, 
And I got an eviction notice delivered in the letterbox two hours after my email. Bathroom upstairs was collapsing into downstairs kitchen and water would run down the kitchen walls whenever you would shower. Broken asbestos, black mould. The owner tried to clean the black mould off the broken asbestos and when I yelled and tried to stop her, she attacked me with a mop. Actual plants would grow up from the middle of the house. So much mould. Reported problems, no fix. Honestly, nearly all the stories I clicked on were about mould. It's clearly a massive problem. The general, like very, very general themes tend to be around repairs, mould and bonds like unfairly held bonds. Those are the big ones. Geordie's kind of become the unofficial ombudsman and tenancy tribunal and spokesman for hard done by renters. But it means he's also copped messages from unhappy real estate agents. You know, if you're a real estate agency with more than 10 people, you can't sue someone for defamation. That's not how it works. If you can't tell, he's also a qualified lawyer. You can go for injurious falsehood or something like that, but then you have to prove malice and it's very difficult. Um, But... With the whole risk situation, I'm the publisher. It's great that that this website is shining a spotlight on uh, the fact that we do have a a rental shortage in Australia. Hayden Groves is the head of the Real Estate Institute of Australia. And honestly, I didn't think he'd say that. We are in a situation where properties of that nature that really are just not fit for habitation, uh, many of them, um, not all of them, but, but many of them are, should, you know, just sort of, What it does, of course, is just highlights that we don't have enough quality housing stock and so people are are pretty desperate and so they're they're looking at trying to rent properties that really are just not, not up to standard. And while he tells me that there are two sides to a lot of these stories... He says real estate agents can't list uninhabitable places. No, and look, we, we caution real estate practitioners against listing property online that is, that is clearly they are well short of, uh, of minimum standards. For Geordie, aka Purple Pingers, he's keen to make sure governments and organisations learn from the info that he's got. Like, for example, when, you know, the government is like, oh, mould isn't a problem or something like that. It's like, here's, you know thousands of entries that site mentioned rising damp. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Joe Lauder there, a bit of an explanation of what's going on in the new world of exposing bad rental properties online. Got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, we were broken into by the previous tenants and the landlord wouldn't even agree to change the locks. Another person says, I rented a house within a week, found out it had termite damage when I ripped off the front door. <laughs> Oh, that's so intense. You've got someone on the line now. Maddie from Melbourne's with us. G'day, Maddie. What was your experience with your rental? Um, it was pretty shocking, to be honest. We lived in a property in West Footscray that we saw we couldn't really inspect it properly because of COVID. Um, and when we did see it, we were there for all of five minutes before we were thrown out of the property by the real estate. She said that she was going to get a whole bunch of stuff fixed before we moved in. Um, by the time we got there with all of our stuff, nothing had, had really changed. Oh. Over the course of 12 months, we had possum and mice infestations, which oh. we ended up having to get our dogs medicated because they were so stressed. Oh, my God. Uh, I had to, I presented to hospital with respiratory problems after reporting mould in the bathrooms, kitchen and bedrooms. Wow. Um, 
they sent out for every issue that we raised with them, they sent out anywhere between three and five different tradespeople to get quotes, but they never actually got them fixed. Right. So they were uh, they were appearing to respond, but nothing was happening, and you were raising this what on a daily basis. Yeah. So we were we were emailing them every day, every second day, trying to get updates on you know things like the gas complexity being non-compliant. They would send out a handyman to fix minor things and then they would just sort of leave us waiting for everything else. So what ended up happening, Maddie? um, When we threatened to go to VCAT after eight months of being let on, they evicted us. Oh, Oh, that is horrible. That is so, so bad. I mean, it's probably best for your own health and safety that you're (laughs) out of that place. Um, But then the problem is obviously finding another place. Look, Maddie from Melbourne, thank you so much for calling in with your experience. There are so many other people uh, on the text line uh, hitting us up on Instagram as well with their own experiences. Well, what can you actually do if you're in a situation like this? Like, apart from using a platform like Shit Rentals, what more should you be doing? You just heard Maddie's experience. Well, let's ask a lawyer. Jackson Panham is with Slater and Gordon Lawyers and he's with me now. G'day, Jackson. Thanks for coming on Hack. My pleasure. It feels like tenants are like starting to get more and more of a platform, feeling more comfortable to speak out about what are sometimes really bad situations they're in. Are you as a lawyer noticing more people are asking for legal advice to deal with landlords and real estate agents? We have seen a significant increase in the amount of inquiries um, wanting legal advice where uh, tenants have been injured in the houses that they're renting because of some sort of safety issue or dangerous condition that the landlord hasn't repaired. So what kinds of issues are you seeing? Like in terms of injuries, for instance, what kind of injuries are we talking about? We see all sorts, but some of the most egregious things that I've um, been involved with are cases involving people being electrocuted because of bad wiring in a house where they put the landlord on notice for months and nothing was done about it until they were suffered significant electrocution. I've also seen examples of um, structural issues with rental premises that have been reported and Nothing's been done about it and people have ended up having really significant falls or been injured because of um, bits of the house falling down around them. Do you feel like people are probably not coming forward a lot of the time because they're concerned about their rental situation? I mean, that's what uh, tenants are telling us all of the time, that it's such a tight situation in the rental market, they feel like they don't have many rights at all. I think that's precisely the issue. We hear often that whilst they've reported a safety issue, they haven't potentially followed up and, and taken the landlord to the court or relevant tribunal because they're worried they're going to be kicked out of the house. Faced with that, the alternative of living in a house with a potential safety issue versus being on the streets. So what should people do if there are significant issues with the place, whether it's black mould or whether it's a ceiling issue or a floor issue, what should you do if you feel like you're not being listened to? Well, you need to make records of when you complain about issues. You should raise it with the real estate agent appropriately and uh, quickly but you need to make sure that when you do report it that there's a record of it so my recommendation is always to do it if you're going to do it on the phone follow up with an email make sure that it's in writing and that you save a copy of the correspondence Um, take photos of the issue as it develops so there can't be any dispute about when it may have arisen that can also be an issue in terms of getting your bond back i think most people who have rented a house would be familiar with that problem as well so yeah keeping records and making sure that you document everything is is critically important. And when might it get more serious and you might get a lawyer involved? Like how long should you be waiting until you contact a lawyer? Disputes involving 
repairs to the rental property, you know, you, most of the time you're not dealing with a um, situation that requires a lawyer and there's a legal framework there for people to go down to. When that has its own problems, there's delays, it's not quick and you don't get uh, necessarily get always get the outcome you want. But certainly if, if you've been injured because of something that hasn't been repaired in your rental premises, it's important to get legal advice from a personal injury lawyer. We're hearing from so many people on the text line. Someone here's just messaged in, said, I had really bad wiring at the front door. When it rained, I'd get an electric shock. No one would fix anything. Someone else says, yeah, I was uh, living in Brighton in Victoria. My ceiling started leaking, even short-circuiting the lights. I was complaining to the real estate agents. They said, oh, it's just the rain. Just, uh, just wait for a bit. After five days of rain, it turned out that it was a broken pipe flooding the roof cavity. Uh, I'm still dealing with it. It was six months ago. On Instagram as well. Oh my gosh, we're being flooded with stories from people on Hacks Instagram. One person says, balcony railing wasn't secured and I fell a story cracking my skull and lost hearing in one ear. Someone else, gas in my oven exploded. I got burnt, ended up in emergency, still no fix. Nicole says, I got shocked by a faulty light switch in the toilet, took them well over four months to fix it. Oh my God, there's so many stories here. Another person, we had mushies growing out of our carpet and the real estate kept sending someone out to inspect the problem, but pretty sure it was just his buddy because something nothing ever got fixed. Similar situation to Maddie, people coming out to inspect, but not much happening. Kiki says, I lived in a flat infested with redback spiders. They only did something after I was bitten. And Kaylin says, waiting for work, uh, waiting for a working lock on the front door, even though someone was murdered on our street last week. Oh my gosh, these stories are so intense. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Jackson Panham from Slater and Gordon Lawyers about injuries in rentals, how you go about getting things fixed in your place when you're not having much luck with real estate agents, with landlords. Jackson, just to be clear, you're saying when you're in a situation like some of these people that have just messaged in, you've been injured because of a safety issue. If it's already at that stage, you should be speaking to a lawyer. If it's not at that stage and you're worried about what could happen, about being hurt or injured, you should be keeping really detailed records. Uh, what are the rules, Jackson, around rental rights? Like, are they really different across Australia? Look, they are different, but broadly speaking, the system is the same. There's a specific tribunal set up in, in each state that deals with residential tenancy disputes. The process is slightly different in each one, and, and I think that's part of the problem because it is, it's not simple and straightforward, and it takes, it's quite time-consuming to probably have to take time off work to attend hearings. Probably, if you need to prove that something needs to be repaired, you might need to get a building expert to produce a report that has a cost to it. Um, and most of those tribunals, you can't recover legal costs. So having a lawyer act on your behalf is not really um, viable either. Do you think we need to see a lot more reform in this space to better protect people who are renting, you know, or across the board? I do. I think the legal framework that exists theoretically works, but there are just practical obstacles and the whole system now, there really is a power imbalance between renters and landlords. Primarily that's market-driven because there are, there are less um, available houses than there are people who need to rent. And so that drives th this imbalance. But there needs to be some more uh, direct and immediate consequences for landlords who do not take steps to enact urgent repairs when it relates to safety issues. What do you think of platforms like Shit Rentals and, and what they're doing to give a voice to tenants? I'm hardly surprised that a platform like that has taken off because... 
the way that society works now. You know, online reviews are important. People um, inform themselves and will check in, will check things. And if there is a forum available for you to check whether the house you're in tending to rent comes with it a dodgy landlord or a real estate agent who's going to be um, unhelpful if there is any safety issues arising. I think that's a new and powerful tool for renters to use in conjunction with the advice that we're giving today. Any extra advice you have for tenants who might be struggling at the moment? You know, there are many different ways in which you can enforce your rights all the way through from doing it yourself to getting a lawyer. It has to be responsive to what the situation is. So if you're living in a house that has a really significant safety issue and you cannot get anywhere with your real estate agent and or landlord get legal advice speak to your state-based consumer affairs or department and all real estate agents society because i think there needs to be a bit of a market correction in terms of that relationship ultimately the tenants are the consumers and the service that's being provided is often substandard a lot of people are going to be listening, uh, taking notes. Jackson Panham from Slater and Gordon Lawyers, thank you very much for coming on Hack. My pleasure. It's a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, I took my landlord to the tribunal for black mould and one, learned a lot from the experience. Someone else says, our light caught fire before our landlord took any action. We also had to take them to VCAT, to the tribunal, to get reimbursed for urgent repairs. Someone else, a landlord. We've got some landlords messaging in saying, you know, I'm a landlord to seven properties. Uh, I take all these safety issues really seriously. Any that are raised for me, any landlords that don't should be fined. That was from Justin. And someone else says, hey, Dave, when are you going to do a session where us boomers can bring in and complain about young people damaging our multiple rental properties? Uh, not today. Hey, do you think they underestimate how popular country music 100%. is in Australia? On Triple J. Do you get around country music? If you do, you'll know names like Morgan Wallen, Luke Combs, Lainey Wilson, Zach Bryan, dominating the charts in the US as well as here in Australia. But where are all the big young Australian country artists here? Like, how are they going? Because while country's got a lot of support in Australia, country music, it's obviously nothing compared with how massive it is in the United States. It's one of the biggest genres there. So what are the barriers stopping young country artists making it huge here? And what kind of changes could we see in the years ahead? Lucy Cooper's got more. Last night we let the liquor talk. I can't remember. Country music is taking over US charts and making history. Earlier this year, for the first time since 1981, the top two spots on the Billboard Top 100 charts were country songs. The music industry in America reckons this huge mainstream success will see the country genre enter a new era. But things are not looking as good here in Australia. In Australia, I feel like you don't hear country music on your mainstream radios or any anything like that. I think people do still visualise it as a completely separate like thing here in Australia and that's why we have all our own country music radio and all that stuff. This is Josie. She's an up-and-coming country artist based in Townsville, North Queensland. Josie released her debut single this year. You might have heard this on your TikTok feed and Josie reckons the platform has actually been the key to a lot of the song's success. TikTok is just the place to be at the moment. All those, yeah, top number ones, you just see them 
you know, blow up on TikTok. And it's like pushing my music out to a much larger audience than I probably would have ever been able to reach. Despite that heavy influence of Americana themes in country, Josie really wanted to bring an Aussie vibe to her music. I was just trying to find something to write a song about and I was like, okay, what can I write about? Let me go listen to the Fresh Country playlist on Spotify. Go and have a listen. That's where all the top songs are these days. So many people are like referencing America, Nashville, Tennessee, all that sort of stuff. You know, I could sit there and write a song about that, easy done, but I really, really wanted my whole thing to be that I'm a genuine storyteller. I'm authentic and raw and real. But despite her wins so far, Josie's super aware of a big question looming over her career. How and where will she be able to make it? If I wanted to move over to Nashville, like, what are the chances over there even? Because it is just so saturated. Like, everyone over there has that same dream. They want to do the same thing. They want to go and become a country star. And it's like, well, you know, you, you feel like you have a better chance over in Australia because it's not that saturated. But then everything that is anything has come from Nashville. So it's like, what do you do? Josie's not alone in feeling lost in Australia's country music scene. West Australian artist Johnny Taylor's been in the industry for over a decade. He's been on shows like Australian Idol and Australia's Got Talent. I've seen it happen with people here, people that are so, so talented, have all the charisma, have all the talent, have the looks, have everything behind them, the most powerful managers in the business. And, you know, can't quite make it here. They go to America and all of a sudden it's like, oh, he is actually awesome or she is awesome. So why is there a gap? Why did tickets to Luke Combs sell out immediately here, yet most Aussies struggle to name five local country artists under the age of 30? A lot of the issue is the whole country and western thing. You know, everyone says, oh, how do you write a country song? It's about when you lose your dog and your wife leaves you and this, that and the other. And those cliches are definitely there. I mean, you don't have to look hard to find them, but there's a lot of really clever music. There's a lot of really clever songwriters. Here in Australia, the birthplace of country music is in Tamworth. There, experts talk about a few reasons why Aussie country artists are still struggling to make it. Here's Barry Harley. He runs the Tamworth Country Music Festival. Fans consume their music very differently than they did even 10 years ago. That in itself has been a bit of a challenge for the Australian country music industry is because international music has been more readily available than perhaps it was 10 or 15 years ago. Add to that also the loss of importance of radio play, the number of radio stations that actually commercially were playing country music you know, back 20 years ago seem to be higher and the, the competition out there is, is so high that they're not getting the cut through. And of course, no one's being naive about a major factor, population. If you appeal to 1% in the United States, you're a millionaire. If you appeal to 1% in Australia, you've got to have a second job at IGA. I asked Barry about what the future could look like for emerging artists like Josie, and he's kind of optimistic country music industry in Australia has a bright future from the point of view of the numbers of people that are involved in it. There's a lot of people out there still following the genre and uh, if only we could actually translate that into dollars and cents for them to give them a, a better career, that would be that would be great. Josie's also hopeful change is in the air and she's decided to stay on home soil for now. When I think back to me in primary school, everyone would like bully you for listening to country music. It just was not the in thing. If you listen to country, yeah, hillbilly or redneck or something like that, like, or a bogan. But I think these days, like, that perspective has definitely changed. Hack on Triple J. Lucy Cooper with that story. Got a lot of people messaging in, a lot of fans of this genre of music, of country. 
Someone on the text line, River and Bondi, says, When I started playing music in Australia, I had a country band and was told by a prominent figure in the music industry in WA that there wasn't a place for a black woman in country music in Australia. Look, there are huge issues in terms of diversity, all kinds of things. There's a big write-up on this on the ABC website. If you go there and go to ABC News, you'll find a big feature where you can learn more. Definitely so many people messaging us just now with their favourite acts, local acts in Australia, international acts as well. Something people are really getting around. All right, time to get on. Hat. We're focused on trying to understand whether rain cloud brightening is even a feasible way of slowing climate warming. On Triple J. Have you heard of cloud brightening? It's exactly what it sounds like, making clouds brighter to help protect the ocean from extreme heat. You're probably asking, well, how do you do that? Why why do you do that? How, like, would it help? How would it help? Well, there's a team of Australian researchers who are investigating just that, and they're hoping that if this technology works, it could be used to save one of our best-loved but most at-risk natural icons, the Great Barrier Reef. I want to find out more about this. So with me to chat is one of the researchers. Daniel Harrison is an oceanographer, an engineer. He's with Southern Cross Uni. G'day, Daniel. Thanks for coming on Hack. G'day, Dave. Thanks for having me. Can you explain to us what cloud brightening is and, and how we do it from all the way down here? Well, the, the, the thing that probably not many people realise is that, that we're actually doing it all of the time. Um, the IPCC estimates that we're offsetting about 30% or so of global warming by inadvertently brightening the clouds. Oh. So how are we doing and that? So it, it comes down to the fact that when a cloud forms, each droplet in the cloud, it needs a tiny little particle floating in the air to condense around for the, the water vapour to, to come out of change phase from being a, a vapour to a cloud droplet. And in certain regions of the world's oceans, there's very, very few of these particles. The air is very clean. There's not that many particles uh, for the water droplet to condense onto. And human activity, anthropogenic activity, is adding lots of these extra aerosol particles to the atmosphere. So we're, we're inadvertently brightening the clouds all of the time through our, our uh, activities like land clearing and, and fossil fuel-based energy consumption. All of these things emit these particles into the air. Right, okay. I mean, it's interesting that because it's kind of negative impacts having this consequence that could also be, you know, in some way helping to guard the ocean from extreme heat. How does that work? Well, so as, as well as these uh, human aer aerosols that we're producing, uh, the natural environment obviously produces most of them. And so over the oceans, uh, most of the particles that, that cloud droplets condense onto uh, come from sea salt. So wind blowing across the ocean makes waves and they release tiny droplets of sea salt into the atmosphere. And, and so it's a natural process as well. And um, the most of the clouds that form around the world they, they have enough of these cloud condensation nuclei, we call them, um, to, to sort of be, you know, more or less as bright as they're going to be. But in certain regions under certain atmospheric conditions, that's not the case. And, and there's the brightness of the clouds is limited by the number of nuclei. And, and that's when we think we could, we could uh, artificially enhance this natural process by, by putting extra sea salt into the air and, and brightening the clouds. And so some estimates essentially are that, you know, if we, if we did this globally, we could offset 
global warming, but that's a, a you know not the sort of undertaking that we're interested in. We're interested in whether you could do it locally, just over the Great Barrier Reef, to cool the water down temporarily during these marine heat waves that are causing the bleaching. Right. So it would be kind of, I guess, like a band-aid fix to maybe buy a bit more time or to stop these big bleaching events in time. Um, how's the research going? Like, is it showing that it's working? Because you're seriously like pumping seawater, salt particles into the air with big cannons, right? Yeah, so the the actual process is really, really simple. We're the the only puts uh, energy in seawater so we're just atomizing seawater basically and and yeah through these big cannons we just spray it up a little way so that it, it doesn't sink straight back into the ocean and then we let the, the natural atmospheric processes mix it up to the clouds uh, so yeah the, the research is going really really well we've uh, been nobody in the world had they've been researching cloud brightening for for 30 years or so now theoretically and in models um, and and by observing sort of natural experiments but nobody had ever tried to develop technology to do it intentionally before and so it's taken us a few years to, to sort of responsibly develop the technology and and scale it up little bit by little bit making sure that that it's safe as we go and and sort of it's all this research is done in the great barrier reef marine Park, so very highly regulated and work very closely with the regulators to, to get approval for, for each sort of step. But we've now reached the stage where we're starting to look at the changes that we're generating in the clouds. So we're starting to see the, the brighter clouds. Well, look, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And obviously there is so much consideration in terms of the risks. People probably thinking, oh, would we be mucking around with rainfall patterns, with ecosystems, stuff like that. If you want to learn more, there's a great conversation piece uh, on the conversation website that Daniel's written. You can go find it there. Daniel Harrison from Southern Cross Uni, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Uh, thanks for having me, Dave. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.